Self-care, I think, is just primarily about boundaries for yourself, your own emotional safety, especially I think as being non-white, being Asian, however you want to look at it, being, you know, if you identify female or other or, you know, whatever smaller subgroup that you see yourself at, right? Like being able to stick up for your own boundaries is challenging, right? Because no one else is going to do it for you. You know, very few people are going to be like, hey, no, don't do that to this person, you know, or look out for you that way. You have to be the one that has to exercise and flex and build those muscles, you know, those boundary muscles, if you will. Heyo, welcome to the Asian Detox Podcast, the podcast where we boldly reclaim Asian American prosperity. We have relatable conversations about how being Asian American shows up in our day-to-day lives, how money is deeply embedded in our culture, and how you can choose to define your own version of success in a world that tries to tell us how to be. I'm your host, TJ Wei, your hashtag very Asian, non-binary, gluten and dairy-free money habits coach, and I want you to know that you don't have to live in the boxes other people put you in. You can design your abundant life in a way that honors your heritage, while enjoying a life of ease and alignment. And you can do it while making money and building generational wealth. Welcome to the podcast, Mason. Would you do a brief intro for our audience? Sure. Hi, I'm Mason Lee. I am a yoga teacher, triathlete, actor. My yoga company is called Death and Yoga. And I guess, I mean, start from there. I guess I feel like if I start going in, it's there's just a lot to potentially cover. So I feel like I'm going to keep it succinct. <laughs> okay. Well, as a, as a basic icebreaker, I love to do with my guests. If your parents were to run into an acquaintance in like the grocery store, like what would they say about you? <laughs> they would say that they don't know what I do. <laughs> they would say that I live in New York. They would say I'm an actor. And I do lots of like sports. Sports. (laughs) In the very generic sense. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they may say, oh, yeah, like running, swimming, you know, yoga, like, but I'm not sure, you know, my mother would truly understands what all these things are, but Mm -hmm. she would, she knows that I'm active. She knows like the actor stuff. She knows I live in New York. And that's probably the extent. I don't think she would be a very good person to go to for a whole lot of detail. (laughs) But that's okay. Are your parents immigrants? They are. They moved here individually because they weren't married. They're um, from Korea. So Ancestry is Korean. But they met actually here in the States and they got married here. So Bruce is where a lot of times it's like married couples that come over. But they independently came over. I think my father actually came on his own. Mm. And my mother came as like a whole like family movement. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then they found Um, each other. Yes. Right. Exactly. That's awesome. Although I get conflicting stories about how they met, but you know. (laughs) Yeah, I I do too. When I ask my parents, I get two different, like I always have to ask both. (laughs) It's that I have aunties on either side that are like, oh, I'm the one that introduced them. I'm the one that introduced them. So it's that kind of thing. And I can't get clarity around who's like, I, you know, because I feel like these aunties, like, why would they know each other? You know, like, so it's not like they were best friends on both sides that yeah. then were like, let's get these people together. Yeah, I mean, that, that would be like romantic comedy level uh, like right. relationships. Yes. Right. But people are claiming this, like, you know, this whole thing. And I'm like, oh, okay. All right. Well, well, they met apparently. <laughs> yeah. Somehow they met. Like, my brain is going, is there like 
something to be proud of there when you introduce people. I guess people want people want like claim into like other people's like lives. Like I introduced them. <laughs> yes, like be part of the story. Yes, yeah. <laughs> totally. Oh, but and I guess I'll just go ahead and say my father actually transitioned from cancer twenty years ago, so I know that that might come up at some point, mm-hmm. which is why I primarily talk about my mother. If you ask me about my parents, I'll probably say my mother most of the time, but I guess it depends on what right. what we're going over. So, well, well, since you brought it up with with cancer, like, would you give us a background of like your experience with cancer and the season we're talking about self care? And so how did that play a part in your experience or how do you wish it played a part? So my father had cancer. He got diagnosed with cancer when I was a teenager. So I forget how old I was specifically, but the thing with my father's health condition is that for my memory, it started when I was around like 12, right? So he'd gone in for this like liver biopsy. He came back and like the doctor had like basically punctured his esophagus, which we didn't know at the time. And so he ended up in the hospital for like a month and a half, you know, like an ICU and this kind of thing. So he lost a lot, all this weight. It like rivaled my own weight. Oof. And so basically from that point, my father was never fully well in my mind. Right. Right. And so 12. So you fast forward a few years when I'm in high school, I want to say it's probably around 16 or so. And he gets diagnosed with lung cancer. Right. And he still hasn't regained the weight that he lost, you know, when I was 12. Wow. And, you know, he went through radiation and thing, I guess no chemo from what I remember because he didn't lose all his hair and stuff, but he did mm. have radiation and, you know, he recovered from that. It went into remission. And ultimately when I was in college actually is when he transitioned because cancer came back and basically, and I don't know how the doctors at Stanford or whatever, like missed all this, but it basically, you know, it had come back and it was like, I mean, it had like just ravaged his entire body, I guess. Oof. It just like, it was sudden, you know, fast and it just all consuming, you know, but those ten, like roughly 10 years of my life, right. My father's, I guess, health, it never optimized, right. Or it never mm. became what it should have been. Right. right. So um, he was always just really skinny. He was unable to work. And so that translated into, as a kid, you don't really I mean, you know that things are challenging and difficult and mm-hmm. he's moody and, you know, there are mood swings and all these things. And as an adult, who you know, now you're talking like 20 years past that, right? And it's like, now I can look back and be like, hmm, you know, <laughs> like I can notice a lot of things, right? Right. You're reinterpreting your experience. Exactly. So I guess I w- at the time I wish, I mean, I, I don't know, it's hard to say I wish I knew about things because mm-hmm. I'm also a kid. Like, like, why would I need to know? Right. Like at that point, even if you knew about it, like how much influence would you have had at that age? And like, to me, I think like, even now I'm trying to like guide my parents into like more of a growth mindset or different ways to take care of themselves that than what they're used to. It's not that they don't, but it's different. And like, as an adult child, that's still a difficult conversation. So I can't imagine at the age of 12 and 16 that like, whether or not you even felt like you had any way to influence the situation in the first place, much less expecting you to know anything. Correct. You know, and my father was, you know, he's a patriarch, right? He definitely, mm-hmm. had, he was head of household, you know. Yes. A very loving man, but could also be very difficult and sometimes scary, right? <laughs> yes, definitely. Well, and especially in a place where like now he can't work, but he comes from like right. the patriarchal background. So then he's not mm-hmm. feeling like his self-esteem isn't there. Like there's going to be a lot going on that, at the age of 12, you don't even understand any of it. <laughs> right, exactly. 
So there were a lot of times where I think I would get yelled at for unreasonable things mm-hmm. or accused of unreasonable things. And I'd be like, or if I didn't do something exactly perfectly the way that he wanted it done, you know, it was just like I was a complete failure. Right? Mm, yes. But oddly, none of that actually had to do with academics because <laughs> like I didn't have tiger parents, which is. I think what a lot of people assume about Asians and Asian immigrants and Asian parents. Yeah, let, let's talk about that a little bit because I feel like we, like I haven't heard the word tiger parents in a, a good long while, but I also <laughs> remember being a teen when I think it was a book that like, came out and my mom like decided that she was a tiger mom. And I looked at her and I was like, no, you're not. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> But so for everybody who like may or may not know, ti- the like Tire Mom book was like this Asian mom that was like so proud of how perfectionistic she was with how she raised her daughter and like the achievements that her children had and how she like played a role in that. And that like that was like a little phenomenon when we were younger of like, oh, like all Asian parents are like this or they should aspire to be like this and this is how you succeed. And like, apparently you and I both had the experience of like, nope, that's not real. <laughs> <laughs> not really. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think that tiger parent thing is, it's like that drive for success that looks mm-hmm. in this particular way. It's like pushing, pushing, pushing yes. for perfection and perfection equates to success, which yeah. we know is like just, uh, it's a toxic way to think about it. It's unhealthy. Yeah. Absolutely toxic. Yeah, I think of it as like building on Joy Luck Club is like that was the next thing that was like, oh, well, we've got this one kind of classic book about the Asian American experience. Then you put the Tiger Mom thing on top of it. Right. And now we've got things like crazy rich Asians and stuff like that. But that's where the gap was, is like that's the media we had growing up. For sure. Yeah, I didn't have tiger parents, but I was kind of naturally a tiger child. So like, it's like you want to insert a stereotype and I probably fulfilled it on my own. My parents were never like, you know, you have to get straight AIDS. You yes. have to play the violin. Like you have to be a doctor. Like, no, they never said any of these things to me. I just not, I didn't, well, the doctor part, I guess doesn't matter, but I'm in, I'm like, I went to theater. For college, <laughs> you know? like, but you still went to college. I still went to college. Yeah. Which is still like, there are parts of the country where that's not normal. But I also noticed you grew up on the West Coast and like how much do you, would you say that like growing up on the West Coast and I don't know how many like Asian peers you had, but how much would you say your like non-family environment contributed to that? I think unlike a lot of American teenagers in some ways, my high school experience was actually overall really good. I went to a very diverse high school that was like academically like this like accelerated program. It was called GATE, like Gifted and Talented Education, but it was still a public school, right? You had a whole school that was GATE because like that was a program in California. (laughs) Right, exactly, exactly. It it was, but like, well, the middle school was purely GATE, right? But the high school was half like neighborhood public and half like GATE, right? Interesting. Because the middle school and high school were like North and South campuses. And the gate program kids were all just like shuttled into, you know, the the high school. Okay. So they, they bust you guys into... Which is, I guess, what more like affirmative action, maybe? Is that the right term? I'm terrible at that. I don't, but, I don't know. It's like a magnet school at that point. It is a magnet school. It absolutely. But like the, high, the actual location of the high school is kind of in the ghetto, right? So... Oh. Yeah. So that's why I say it's like half like neighborhood. And that was... <laughs> 
not interjecting swear words <laughs> because I refer to this town not so pleasantly all the time, but I'll just call it geographically what it is. It's called Fresno, right? This is where I spent a good portion of my academic life, right? And so it means that there are a lot of there are a lot of immigrants in the area, and we have Mexican, we have Laotian, Hmong, which a lot of no. people like outside of like Fresno. I mean, maybe more so now, but when I say like Hmong, people are like, "What?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I grew up with a lot of like Hmong or you know people around me, you know Hmong students, and they just are like confused because they're actually kind of like a countryless people, right? Yes, but." For some reason, I think it was after the Vietnam War, they just sort of like landed into like Fresno and like, is it like Minnesota? It, I think it's like Minnesota or something. Oh, okay. like the <laughs> like, two two central places, two places that somehow they just got plopped. Yes, and like expanded from there. And then so the neighborhood is probably you know black, Mexican, probably Laotian and Hmong, but also at the same time this, those same demographics along with all the white and all the other Asians mm-hmm. or whatever were being bussed into this sort of like area, and so. It just meant that I was surrounded by a lot of different people. And on top of it, like, I mean, there were, you know, every every school has its cliques and whatever, but it wasn't like, oh my God, why are you hanging out with those people? If you like <laughs> went like over to talk to somebody, there wasn't like the animosity. It was just, yeah, we all had our own individual groups, but right. it wasn't like, what are you doing over there? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not like TV drama level. Yeah mean girls or whatever it is. You know? Yes, for sure. So it made it actually a fairly healthy-ish, somewhat high school experience, you know, notwithstanding general, like the malaise of being a teenager, you know, right. <laughs> but like outside of that, the actual, you know, because the teachers were great, you know, the education was great. And it set a lot of, you know, we are a high school that had, I think our graduating class was maybe around 400. And I want to say, there were probably around 50 valedictorians, you know, and that's everyone, that's anyone for who had a 4.0 or higher. That's more than my high school. And I was my last episode of season one, I was just saying my high school was MSJ and that would, we had my year 23 valedictorians, but like we were like purely academic. We didn't have the level of diversity you had, like even white people who were minorities at our high school. (laughs) Okay, we had token white girl in our car guard. Um, that, that was the level of how how Asian we were. So it sounds like your experience that like I'm kind of jealous because it felt like to me I was in a very like sheltered Asian environment, which was extremely toxic. And it wasn't until I went to college in Arizona that I got like exposure to other cultures and that opportunity. And it sounds like because of the way your high school was designed, you had that built in for you, despite having like an academic focus as well. I mean, I guess it depends on how you want to look at Asian, the word Asian, right? Mm-hmm. There were, yes, there are, like as I mentioned, a lot of Laotian, Hmong, a few Cambodians, and then there were Chinese, Japanese, Korean, mixed Asian. But here's the thing, like, in my year, I think that there was just like one or two of each of these, you know? Mm. So like my immediate friend group was probably primarily Asian, but at the same time, like, I'm like, I don't know how to say this without, eh. but Go you know, it. there's like, <laughs> well, it's like, so I have family in California. And when I went to visit my cousin, say like in San Jose, you know, she went to this Korean church and I, you know, the Korean church in Fresno is not the same thing. Yeah. And so like, I sort of like always wanted to be around like more Koreans because there was like one Korean in my high school, <laughs> like oh, one okay. other grade. Yeah, yeah. And 
we were not friends, you know, because he was kind of a bit of an a-hole, right? <laughs> and so, you know, sure. I mean, just the gender out. thing is already going to be a <laughs> <No>. problem, right? <laughs> but also, like, I think uh, that person was probably very much more into maybe assimilating into white culture. Yes. You know, but again, it just was difference, you know, even though same ancestry, but different, you know, just life, right? Right. Like just different philosophy around how to be an immigrant, right? Being some, it's very much a thing of like, either you try to be extremely white or you try to hang on to your culture really hard. And we probably don't find that balance until we're older. Right. And I think my friend group, while they were primarily Asian, I feel like none of us were like, for better, for worse, however you want to look at this, we none of us, I think, were like super Asian. Mm. I don't know how if that makes sense. Like that's super stereotypically Asian, right? Like, st- I don't. It wasn't like I was coming in every week with all like coming in hot with Korean stuff, or somebody else coming in with all the Chinese stuff, you know, or like the Vietnamese. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. It, it it was just like we were just people and friends, and yes, yeah. I guess we happened to be all some version of Asian, you know, but like. I think some of it was also just because we were all in the same classes together too. You know, we were all doing student leadership. We were all doing, you know, half of us were in orchestra, you know, the other half, you know, we all played sports together. So like, it was just like, it just happened to be that way versus, or in my mind versus like necessarily looking out to be like, I need Asian friends. Right, right. Right. Especially at that age, like, I don't think at that age we look at it that way. Though I will argue, right, things like orchestra and student leadership could be things that are like encouraged in like leadership forward or education forward families like Asians. So there, there's some correlation, but not like then, then you get into sports and that's a whole other problem. Right. You know what it is? I don't think I could be wrong, but I don't think any of us in this group had tiger parents. I think that does make a big difference, you know. And maybe that's kind of maybe the differentiating factor, maybe with the school that you went to, maybe there were a lot more tigery parenty people that then, you know, trickled down to how all the kids behaved. Whereas in this friend group, it's not saying that our parents weren't challenging for us, you know, we're teenagers, right. right? But like on the whole, I don't remember anyone being like, my parents are like, I have to be a doctor, otherwise I'm a failure as a child. You no, know? Like, I think this is a great observation because yes, we had like from in my experience, we had that environmental parenting like hovering over some of our classmates, and you would hear them talk, and that would still influence how you feel. But it's true that like my friend group, I maybe had like two of those friends out of like ten of us would have like stricter parents that had like set career paths in mind for their kids. My mom was probably more in the middle of like, here's a range of things you can do that like it didn't feel so restrictive (laughs) to me. And I could definitely see that as something where like we gravitated towards each other because something that did happen to me when I was younger is I had a best friend in like elementary school age range where I would try to call her every day back when we didn't have like our own cell phones or texting or anything. And at some point, our mom just started screening my calls. And that was like her way of like protecting her child to like focus on academics and not mess around it with after school or anything. And like, I think that just naturally happened because our parents had so much more control over who we interacted with when we didn't have cars or cell phones or internet back then. Right. This is true. We had no cell phones. <laughs> <laughs> there were no, I mean, there were one or two people in the high school that had cell phones. 
but it was definitely not a smartphone <laughs> by mm, any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, no, it was like the emergency phone to get picked up. Exactly. And, you know, I'm not, I, you don't have to tell me how old you are, but like, you know, if the, the way that you can date me is that like internet was in the, the dial up realm, right? Where mm. you have to dial up into AOL oh. and, <laughs> and like, <laughs> you know yes yeah i yeah that, that was my my life i'm probably a little bit younger because we did start getting smartphones in high school i think that might have been junior senior year for us that like sure. the first like the most forward families or whatever right and they all were right. in tech because we were in the bay area like would have a smartphone <laughs> And yeah, my first cell phone wasn't until I got to college, which I'm sure like anyone under probably 30 is like, what? <laughs> you know, now I, I put <laughs> off getting a smartphone until senior year of college on purpose. Okay. All right. I used to get a lot of the gadgets because my dad works in tech and then he'd like bring home random stuff. But with like internet related things, I'm a lot more cautious. Like, I do have internet connected devices in the house now, but I like resisted for a good while because of the security aspects and things like yeah. that. I was like, let's hold off. There's no Alexa in my house. There's no Siri. <laughs> no. I actually don't text. At all? Like you refuse? <laughs> At all. I refuse. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which originally was actually a, um, a financial decision when you first got cell phones, because back then, it was like you had to pay, I think it was like $5 for like 250 messages. Yes, yes. And I was like, what? That'll be eaten up in a second if you knew like, you know, aim like yeah. instant messenger and stuff. Yes. Like you just were like, yeah. that stuff is gone because somebody's like, hey, what's up? You know? <laughs> yeah, the shortest gone. messages or you're in a group text. I definitely had that experience. Exactly. So I was like, I could foresee the future on this. And I was like, nope, I cannot, I can't afford this right at the time. Yeah. And so I just had my phone company completely block incoming and outgoing oh. messages. Because I asked them, I was like, is there, I can't control incoming. I can only yes. control outgoing. Well, you still and get charged like, for them. Right. You get charged <laughs> for them. So then I was like, just block it, whatever. And then I just never undid the decision. And I left it. Wow. And now I, I mean, regardless of the fact that text messaging is just part of general plans and, you know, it's unlimited anyway. Yeah. Yeah. You want to talk about self-care? That is my self-care. I don't. There you go. It's this, distraction. This very firm boundaries. <laughs> I have a very firm boundary. <laughs> and that's a thing that I always like to tell people that like you can use like technology and other people's systems to just enforce your boundaries for you. Because I think a lot of people, the part about boundaries they hate is the concept that they have to tell somebody no, or they have to explain what their boundary is. And mm -hmm. I'm like, no, you can just make your calendar block that off. And you never have to tell a soul that like you're, you're hypothetically doing nothing during that time. Like <laughs> there, yeah, there is that. Um, but I do have to iterate to anyone new that I meet that I don't text when they want my phone number. Anyone who has been in my life, it's already been integrated in. So it's not like this thing that I even have to right. say. But any new person, it's just like... It's a good disclaimer. Yeah, because that's usually the, the the first thing, which like I feel like I'm the reverse. I'm like, I don't take calls. Like, do not call me. Please text me. <laughs> I'm in meetings back to back all the time. You're going to get a better response if you just text me than if you try to call me. Right. Well, I tell people like, you know, you can email me if you don't want to talk to me, you know, or, or call me, right? But here's the thing. Nobody wants to call you. So nobody calls me anyway. So I'm my phone is generally... <laughs> It's, it's an internet machine. It's just your 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 computer. <laughs> exactly. 
it's fairly silent overall. It's generally my mother calling me, <laughs> right? So, uh, and that's not very frequent anyway. So um, my phone is actually pretty quiet and I enjoy it that way because it keeps me from that whole, yes. I have a self-diagnosis of, you know, I think like absorbed societal modern ADHD that I think I just, it's just whatever. I like how you put that. <laughs> because I think it's just over time, like all the way that we receive input from everything, from social media, from the world and the way commercials and things that are just yes training our brain for like nothing yes. to not be able to pay attention for less than a split second. We've totally been trained. And it drives me mad. Absolutely. But my high school friends and I, there's one, one, her and I are debating between whether or not we are high functioning sort of ADHD sort of people because people is, have this stereotype about like what it looks like if you like can't yes. pay attention or whatever. But then like, again, we're coming from this whole, you know, magnet gate program, right? But I think if I look at my friend group, I think we all sort of, or a lot of us have like certain symptoms that were never, you never paid attention because we all got straight eight. Right. <laughs> yes. Right. No. And I want to. I want to explain what high functioning is to people because the the high functioning label applies to a lot of like mental illnesses or other diagnoses that you can have. The concept of like if your IQ is high enough or if you're social enough. So this applies to like autism, right? Then there's ways to mask whether or not you have a diagnosable condition. And it's very common with more intelligent people because they recognize that what the expectations of society are. And then they like, instead of just being what they would have been, they choose to to basically build a mental algorithm for themselves to say, yes. if this, then that. So I will behave this way. Yes. So if like, and I think in Zoom, we get this a lot, especially for corporate people and multitasking like at this point, it's just like, oh, sorry, I was multitasking or like, hey, can you repeat that? I didn't quite like those kinds of things. Like those are the ways that we're just hiding the fact that we're like so easily distracted. Yes. And it applies to like depression and anxiety and like all of these conditions. Absolutely. I'm when you say it like that in terms of like the algorithm of like, you know, input this, you know, output this. You know, and I, I think my entire life has been built around some sort of algorithm. It doesn't mean that I haven't been me, but like as I dissect my own like past and how like the the world that I've grown up in and based on how we are right now and thinking about everything from, you know, patriarchal things, you know, white culture. And then here's yes. the other thing, right? If we're talking Asians, right? We're talking about Asian people a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> just a little. Right. So this is just my own observation, right? And so I have, I think of it this way. So there is the whole trying to live in a white world and so trying to assimilate into a white culture, right? As mm -hmm. Asian or non-white people, okay? Right. But here's the extra layer to this that could be challenging. And, you know, and this is a conversation for you and I, I guess, potentially here. Being Korean, right? In the United States and around the world, generally speaking, when people are like, Hi, you know, what are you? Where are you from? Are you China? I mean, they just say the country, right? Like, this it's is China doll, right? Oh, man. And, you know, I get be howled all day long, left and right. And if I just even I'm like, can you give me another Asian country? They'll be like, Japan, right? But on the whole, 98% of the time, uh, you're talking, somebody's just thinking I'm Chinese. So not only do I live under the world where people think, you know, it's like you trying to assimilate into white culture, but then it's like, mm -hmm. I live under this world where I can't even be Korean because everyone thinks I'm Chinese. Right. So yes. I don't think anyone talks about this because it 
feels like it could be really controversial, but it's not. But it's like, for me, I'm like, the, there's like kind of this, you know, this weight of like being seen as nothing but Chinese, right? It's like, not only can I yes. not be white, right? Or be American, right? But I also can't even be Korean. Right. Yeah. Like you will, you'll never be white enough, but yeah, but you can't be whatever your, your sub ethnicity is. And then right. I just recently came back from Thailand and then it was like a weirder experience because then I was also like, I'm an American and that like English is my primary language. I speak like a tiny bit of Chinese and I go over there and either they talk to me in Chinese because they can tell from my features or they like assume I'm just another like Asian foreigner from another Asian country. And it's a right. whole other level to be like, no, I'm American. <laughs> yes, it is. I went to Korea for the first time. And, you know, this, uh, maybe this is like 15 years ago or so, but it was in my sort of like 20s at some point, right? Maybe mid to mid 20s, I forget. Mm. But in Korea, it was like, okay, granted, I have like this huge 65 liter hiking bag on my back and I'm walking around like hiking poles and I'm obviously a foreigner of some sort, right? So, but that aside, it was just like, so in Korean, everyone would be like, oh, right? They'd be like, are you a foreigner, right? And I'd be like, yeah. To me, the next obvious question is, oh, are you American? Because to me, I felt very obviously American, right? But it was <laughs> never, that was never, never the question. It was always, oh, are you Japanese? And that was like, wow. I was having like an identity, like not crisis, but I was like. Oh, no, I, I had the same problem. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I can't be American in America. I can't be Korean in Korea. I like WTF. Right. <laughs> yes, like... absolutely the same. I did a, a study abroad in China and they'd like assume I was from like a different province. And then, no, I'd say I'm American. They're like, well, you don't look American. <laughs> right. My roommate is like white, blonde, blue eyed. And I'm like, ah, shoot. <laughs> can't be either. Right. Exactly. But they would also then ask me like, uh, because I would speak English at times and they'd be like, oh, where did mm -hmm. you learn your English? It's so good. Because then, so then the other thought is like, wait, you think I'm a Korean who's actually just learned English really, really well. But also then you still don't think like I could be from any English speaking country. It was like, pick one. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's really weird. And then like your experience, you mentioned that they assume you're Japanese. I had that happen too. Or like, I guess to me, there's some people that have had more exposure to other Asian countries. So they know like visually whether or not like they could pick out what ethnicity you are. Other people will just assume like either their own ethnicity or oddly enough, Japanese is like their go-to, honestly. <laughs> like if I'm not Chinese, I must be Japanese. What? Right. I, I know. I'm like, okay. Okay. Sure. You know, but yeah, there's a lot of layers to that. And then it's like when people are like, you know, use the word Asian and then if you ask them, like, what does it mean to be Asian, right? And they're like, oh, you're from Asia. And then I'll be like, do you know that Israel's in Asia? Do you know Russia's in Asia? Yeah, <laughs> right? those conversations. Exactly. exactly. I'm like, do you know, <laughs> like, by your definition, right? Do you know how geography works, guys? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. In that case, all of Israel is Asian, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. It's called Asia Minor, okay? Right. Like, there's, it's... <laughs> Right, exactly. But still, Asia Minor, but still, it's still part of the continent of Asia as a whole, you know? And I'm yes. just like, all right, people, it's a very large place. <laughs> you know?
Yeah, it's it's extremely large. And then, then we've got all these islands. And then, like, honestly, in my brain, I'm like, wait, but Asia and Europe are still, like, land connected to each other. So what is happening right. here? <laughs> we just drew these lines based off of looks. <laughs> right. But that's why all, like, the, the people in, like, the stands, right, the Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan yeah, area like have that, like, buffer countries. Well, but no, but that's why they look mixed, you know, because they kind yes. of, like, they have an Asian, Eurasian sort of, like, look, mm-hmm. right? So people think that they're just mixed, but they're just, like, from, you know, Kazakhstan, you know? And they're like, no, yeah. this is what yeah. our people look like, you know? This is just, just the way it is. There is just, no, like, ooh. stop trying to make me... Right. Fit in another big right. box. Like. Exactly. My mom isn't Asian. And my dad isn't white. You know, it's just like, yeah, you know, anyway. Self care. Like, how do I bring this? Yes. My brain was like, how is this self care? But I think some of it is like, when you're a more educated person, like, how do you counteract that ignorance? Or like, how do you make it okay for yourself that like the world is trying to, to imply a certain identity for you? And some of it is that like, we kind of like build up these arguments for ourselves that like we have to like have a stockpile of rebuttals loaded up when when these happen to us. Yeah. So I think that identity is actually a part of self-care, right? Knowing who you are, right? Because then that means that you put forth those boundaries and you speak up for yourself. And I th- so I think it's actually identity is hugely connected to self-care. That's amazing. Yes. Thank you for saying that. I did not think of it that way before, but like I always tie it back to the concept of like, I got it from Atomic Habits by James Clear, the concept of like your habits are easier to adopt if you already identify as whatever that like as an athlete, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. what would an athlete do? Oh, these are the habits of an athlete. So when you identify or like when you know what your identity is, it's a lot easier to hold your boundaries because you're like, not only do I have this expectation of how I'm treated or how mm-hmm. I treat myself. But it's tied to who I am and therefore I have a very strong reason to like enforce those boundaries or it communicate it to you. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, so I live in New York, um, in Brooklyn at this point, but I went to NYU for the whole theater thing, right? And to satisfy the Asian, you know, parents, the tiger parents, it is the number one theater school in the country. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah, you always have to find like one of those stats to throw at them. Yes. I'll be like, just so you know, <laughs> I may have gone into acting, but it was the number one acting. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. But so that's where I began to actually be exposed to more Koreans, right? There were like whole Korean clubs and like, Koreans that were from Korea, other Korean Americans. Mm, yes. So I was now finally being exposed to other Koreans, which back in California, I wasn't because Fresno just didn't have that many, or I just wasn't around that many of, you know, a, a whole lot of them. No, yeah, I would say the same for my high school too. Like, yeah, I can name one family. Right. That's like, exactly. <laughs> that's exactly. <laughs> but I remember being exposed to, you know, international Koreans that came in right from Korea like in a I was playing traditional Korean drums right and so yeah they would just be like oh I'm just like Korean and that would explain their behavior at a certain you know for a certain thing or why oh, they were so you got to observe this yeah yeah so and as you say what you were saying about like and identity and like how when you like already can see yourself as one person it's very easy to like if you're an athlete you're an athlete and so you do the things that athletes do but they very easily saw themselves as koreans because you know they were born and raised in korea so they came here and they're like well i'm just korean you know and i and for me i'm just like am i korean <laughs> like, like you know <laughs> i have the same thing about like i get asian glow where like you drink alcohol and then you you turn really red and I remember telling somebody like, I'm not drinking because of the Asian glow. And then they're like, they didn't believe me. And that was like, 
this is the whole experience of like, I don't get to just say my identity full stop period, like don't get questioned. It's like, then I have to still defend it because at least in America, they think they know better. <laughs> right. They like, they think they know your identity on your behalf, even though like, like, yeah, in a, in a more homogenous society, like Korea and Japan and China, like that might be valid, but it's not true in America. It just doesn't apply. Right. You can't have those assumptions. Right. But like, as somebody growing up in like a different country than their ethnicity, like that's a fight we have to have like on so many levels. Right. And our parents, at least for me, right, because my parents are the ones that immigrated here. So whether you look at me as first, I consider myself first generation. I know that some definitions consider their parents first generation. Yeah. I consider myself first generation because I'm like, I was the one born on American soil. That's the way I right. Yeah, it, personally. I, I could just call it like it specifically first gen like american right, right? versus first gen immigrant those are two right. different things <laughs> right, exactly as a first generation asian american i grew up trying to fit into the boxes other people put me in i considered acting voice acting and writing as career options when i was little but ended up joining corporate america as an it project manager to take the asian parent approved path the good news is, it's not too late for me to follow those more creative goals, but I didn't have the energy to work both my corporate job and follow those passions. And I couldn't shake the cultural directive to be financially stable so that my parents wouldn't have to worry about me. It's so ingrained in me that it's difficult to focus on more creative pursuits or what might be considered passion projects without the financial backing to support myself. That's why I'm such a big fan of building systems and financial foundations that leverage my hashtag very Asian frugal money habits and the more expansive abundance mindset that I strive to embody every day. While sitting at my corporate job feeling like there must be more to life than this, I spent years learning and absorbing information about how to become financially independent, invest in real estate and stocks, and build a business. And now I'm on track to retire by 40. But more than that, I have the freedom to dress how I want, because how I dress now is certainly not considered professional, adopt unconventional pronouns, and work fewer hours to support my physical and mental health. I get to choose what clients I work with, who I spend time with, and what boundaries I need to set in order to keep the toxic expectations and hustle culture at bay. And I want that for you too. If you're ready to make your next big money move and build the financial foundations you need to feel like you can show up as your full self, I have an offer for you. My generational wealth building money mentorship program is three months of direct access to me and my brain to cut through all of the noise and conflicting information on the internet and get you where you need to be financially. Get a wealth building strategy, action plan, curated resources, and emotional support to put you on the path towards your abundant life. The link is in the show notes. How do they treat, like, what was their philosophy moving to America? Like, how did they want you to behave more American? They came here. They were the ones that immigrated here. And therefore, it's not like they had a guidebook as to how to raise your child to have their roots within their ancestry and not, like, fall under, like, not even consciously, but, like, because it's like you end up being assimilating white culture. Not that I'm trying to be white. Yes. But you assimilate it. And you absorb it because, you know, everything from Disney cartoons to, you know, the things that you watch in TV, you see nothing of yourself, no representation. You know, All American Girl was just okay on that, you know. And then even the Asian shows that exist right now are not great. I'm not going to go into that. But anyway, he's like, 
<laughs> we're, we're making progress, but we're not there. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I'm like, I'm glad they exist, but, oh, you know. Right. Like the the being raised as like it, the third culture child, right? Like you're trying to blend American and the Asian together. And our parents are so used to this concept of they grew up in such a homogenous society that even if their parents didn't intentionally teach them about their culture, they learned about it in school or their classmates did it or like they all just did like autumn festival together or lunar new year together. And like there wasn't any need to explain because there were so many other like the village did the modeling for them that like I have the same experience like the way I put it, my parents didn't try to imbue any culture in me. Right. Like we did some of the, like we basically like token, like did Asian stuff. And then we token did American like three day weekend stuff, but there was nothing in it that like told me, Oh, this is something that like, I have to like, this is a cultural phenomenon that I should like learn about or memorize or like be a part of my adulthood. No, like at this point I'm like, I have to go do research about these things to be like, how does this actually work? Because I it just, it wasn't something I could get by osmosis and our parents didn't know that we needed additional support because of the way we were raised. Right. And because they wouldn't, they haven't been in the experience, uh, the situation to be able to, to have that information. Like, why would they know? You know, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And so it's only now that like, as us first generation you know, are coming into, you know, our adulthood and we're having that distance and that space to be able to, you know, reflect back on, you know, the way we grew up, the, our experiences, because you're right. I'm kind of similar in the same way. Like I didn't have anything that was, you know, loudly Korean in my life. Right. Other than, (laughs) other than like really food. Mm -hmm. And then like, I guess, you know, parents playing old Korean music in the car, you know, like the cassette deck where they popped in, you know, whatever it was. And they just went, you know, on like loop forever. And so, but I mean, I feel like that's like any kid, like having to listen to their parents' music, you know? Yeah. Uh, That was like a, like a nineties kids thing anyway. Mine just happened to be Korean old, like, you know, old fogey music. (laughs) You speak some Korean, right? Like, cause I think you mentioned like, yeah, I'm not fluent by any stretch of the imagination, but I could, I could live there and I'd be fine, you know? I would survive. You would survive. I, I probably wouldn't survive in, <laughs> in any Asian country. No. <laughs> Maybe Singapore because they officially have English. Like <laughs> you can adopt their accent too. <laughs> and they'll never know. I, I probably could. I could probably manage that. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, this has been a great conversation. I want to be conscious of time. Would you share more with my audience about your oncology yoga and the work that you do? Sure. So my company, Death and Yoga, my, uh, I specialize in yoga for triathletes and for cancer, either together or separately, whatever it is. But the oncology side is, is this idea that it takes a village, right, to for healthcare for all of our care. It's something that I think is missing, especially in the United States, because we all are very separated from our, our sort of like our primary like homes and families and, you know, again, talking about ancestry, et cetera. Yes. Like the extended network. Right. So it's a, it's a yoga membership, right? It's called Kindred and it's bringing together yoga, meditation, asana, psychology, which is like mindset stuff. And also like, you know, special guests who are, you know, gifted in ways that I'm not right. (laughs) And all of that is basically to relieve, improve, or eliminate cancer side effects. 
And the program is for anyone who's been touched by cancer. And that could mean you are someone going through cancer, someone who is recovering from cancer, in remission, or even just somebody who's like a caretaker, or you're just somebody who knows somebody that affects your life in some, you know, major way. Right. If you feel impacted, yes. Right. Impacted by cancer in some fashion or another. So it's, you know, what makes it sort of different, right? It's we, I use props always, like props are absolutely mandatory. There is no peak pose, which is um, something that is often found in a lot of Western yoga, where it's like, we're all taking this class to build up to contort into scorpion, this useless shape for most people, because no one has the flexibility or the strength to be able to do it. I mean, it certainly doesn't do much for anyone's confidence because everyone... it's like an achievement oriented model versus what right. you're trying to do is alleviate symptoms. Yes. Symptoms from like, you know, brain fog, fatigue, depression, bone loss, and then, you know, just building up that strength and range of motion that is often lost through treatment, you know, whether that's because you've lost weight or gained weight, or you've had surgery that like if you've had breast cancer, there are different kinds of surgeries. And if you had you know, tissue moved from here to up here, you've had it moved from here, up there, whatever it is, you know, mastectomies, et cetera. So it impacts a lot of times, like the range of motion of like the arm, like what this can do. So maybe before surgery, you could do this, but maybe now you can only go here, right? So the the physical portion, uh, the asana part of oncology yoga is designed to consider those kinds of things, right? So that's why we use props, everything, lots of them, whether it's the blocks, the bolsters, the straps, et cetera, so that you know, you can practice safely, but also it's not like treating you like a delicate, you know, flower, right? Because it's not that either, because what I teach is you can do hard things and you get to, Mm -hmm. right? So it's that get to mindset that's really, really important that, you know, maybe not right now, but we, you can work towards whatever goal it is that you potentially have, right? And that's actually where like triathlon kind of comes into play. Originally, I, you know, got into triathlon raising money for a cancer research organization in honor of my father. So I did my very first triathlon like 16 years ago in honor of my dad. So that's how that sort of connects. And the mindset of like what happens in triathlon, which is like, you know, everything in triathlon is choice, right? You get to choose, right? And cancer, you don't choose cancer, right? But in both scenarios, you choose how you want to go through them, right? And so on the cancer side, there is not extensive studies, but there are studies. There is somebody who has been trying to study, and I forget the name of the author, but the book is called Radical Remission. I think she came out of Berkeley um, on this, but she actually wanted to study the population of people who just were miraculously getting better and went around like to different, studied different people from different cultures and around the world or whatever for, you know, for a while. I think she tried to come up with a, a whole, like, she came up with like 70 or 75, like different things that everyone said, Ooh. this is what I did. This is what I did. But she narrowed it down mm-hmm. to like the, the top nine or 10 things that were common among all the, the different people asked to and made, created this book to sort of go over what set them apart from this other person who didn't live as long or had a heart, you know, more challenging time or whatever right. it is in terms of cancer. And, uh, you know, a lot of it, you know, I don't remember them all right now, but, you know, it was mindset, the way they thought about it, gratitude, yes, you know, choosing joy, that kind of thing, and having like a support network, but also movement, right? Exercise. Yeah. So my oncology program sort of, (laughs) you know, tries to tie all of that in. No, I see like a very powerful parallel here, right? Because I actually know several people who are in remission from cancer that have become triathletes. Like it's a real like reclaiming of your power after you've gone through something that 
he probably had a more sedentary, I, don't, I can't pronounce the word, a, a experience where like, you, you had to have <laughs> sedentary. There you go. The, the sedentary experience, either from like your treatment or just because like at some point you probably just want to curl up and just feel like a victim for a good while. The, the fact that like building up to become a triathlete is the same, like the same mental strength yes. that you, you had to have to get through cancer. You can apply that and treatment. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you can do like your, your training regimens and you build up to it. And a lot of it is like willpower and getting through that wall because your body can do a lot more than you think it can. It's all mindset. So it's super powerful that what you're doing, especially when you're talking about including props and the way you do yoga, you're not expecting people to be able to hit a certain pose like immediately and you're not starting them all on the same playing field, right? Especially because like I'm like, my proportions are all weird. So <laughs> I can't touch the ground. Like that's just not like, can't touch my toes. It's not how this works. So props make so much more sense because you can do similar things where you build up to what you need and the in range of motion we don't talk about enough in, when we talk about like physical wellness. Correct. People try and say that, you know, they're intimidated by yoga because they think it's all about contorting and being flexible and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And actually it's not. That's just because the Western, you know, society throws a bunch of, you know, skinny white women in Lululemon pants on Instagram, again, contorting into <laughs> shapes that are not very useful for any of us, right? In our general range of motion. If you are a contortionist or an acrobat or a gymnast, then yes, by all means, this makes sense. But for most of the population, it's not. And there will never be a peak pose in anything that I offer, even for the triathletes, to be honest. Even so, I tell people, I'm like, I could take the same pose that I would do for the triathlete and for a cancer demographic, right? And, but the emphasis would be different. The work would be different Mm. within the pose, right? So, one of my uh, fellow yoga teachers, she puts it this way any pose can help and any pose can harm. It just depends on what you do with it. So even like a child's pose or something that people think that is like this resting pose or whatever, it could be harmful depending on how it's being taught or what's being done within it, you know? So I focus a lot on like functional mobility and strength and also come as you are, right? I tell people, look, if you're having a terrible day and this is on the triathlete side, right? So obviously this would also very much apply to oncology. Yes. I'm like, look, if you are having a crappy, crappy day, and you show up and all you want to do is just be in Shavasana the entire time, you can be. You have that authority. You can give yourself permission. You know, you don't have to do anything I say, right? You can just show up and be like, yeah. I'm just going to, I just want to be in a room or in this virtual room with other people and I'm just going to lay here. <laughs> you know? And that's fine. And that's mental health. That's your self-care, you know, because it's up to you. It's not up to me. You know, I'm just trying to show you different things you could do. And then you have to choose what you think is best for you on any given day. You're empowering them. You're giving them choice and in really like expecting them to do that self-evaluation. And I think we're, we live in a society where we don't actually want people to self-evaluate most of the time. We'd right. rather like sell them things that they don't need or things like that. And I love that you're giving them permission to Absolutely. not only come as they are, but not like try to stress themselves out. Cause like I could still show up and still try to do what you say or I can feel like I get to act the way I want, even like I get to participate still, right? Like there's a social aspect to it or sometimes it's like I paid for this, so I'm going to show up to it kind of thing. (laughs) Right, exactly. But you know, self-care, I think it goes back to what I said about the identity, right? Mm -hmm. Identity and knowing, and therefore it, it informs your boundaries, right? So 
Self-care, I think, is just primarily about boundaries, right? For yourself, your own emotional safety, because I think that's what, especially I think as being non-white, being Asian, however you want to look at it, being, you know, if you identify female or other or, you know, whatever smaller subgroup (laughs) that you see yourself at, right? Like being able to stick up for your own boundaries is challenging, right? Because no one else is going to do it for you. You know, very few people are going to be like, hey, no, don't do that to this person, you know, or like, you know, or look out for you that way. You have to be the one that has to exercise and flex and build those muscles, you know, those boundary muscles, if you will. Yes. So I think that's the root and like super crucial point for self-care is that it starts with identity and your own boundaries. And I think from there, then you'll be like, no, I'm taking my spa day. No, I am not. (laughs) I am not texting. I am, you know, no, I am not not answering this call. (laughs) I'm not answering this call. I'm not going to go to that party. I'm not. No, you know, and you just and because you're confident in who you are, your own sense of identity, whatever that may be, then you can just say no. And it's not like no with guilt or no with shame or no with trying to people please, because, you know, I think as as somebody, again, who identifies female and, you know, exists under the Asian, you know, stereotype, you know, the minority aspects. Yeah. It's like you grew up in in the U.S. and it's people pleasing, trying to assimilate, trying to like be okay, trying to not make it disturbing. Right. Self-sacrifice. Don't, yeah. Don't cause trouble. All of those things. Exactly. And now it's like, it's not my problem <laughs> like, if you don't like it. <laughs> yeah, those are your emotions. You can keep them over there. Um, I'm, I'm going to enjoy my bubble over here. Before we close out, I do want to like circle back a little bit with the range of motion thing because I just feel like it doesn't get talked about enough. And, and we're talking about like confidence in your identity and boundaries. And like to me, what came up for me was like the better my range of motion or the better I feel about how well my body functions, that contributes to my ability to say, yes, I can do this. Or like it just comes into my life in other ways of saying, oh, I can push a little farther in other spaces because I feel good in my body. So I really love that like your oncology yoga encompasses so much of what could be self-care for somebody who goes through your program. Totally. And the flexibility, sorry to touch on the the one thing was it's not flexibility of the body that I'm that I'm concerned about. It's actually the mind, right? That's the part that that's why I try and tell people is or teach is that I'm more concerned about what happens up here, up in the brain. And yes. Because that's where even physical flexibility will come into play. So yes, range of motion, all of that. And here's the thing about range of motion. You only need as much in order to lead the life you want to lead. Yes. Right? You don't need some gymnast versions, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You don't have to aspire to the athlete level. It's really like, if touching your toes is a goal that you have, then great, mm-hmm. let's go for it. But I don't need to touch my toes to go through my daily life doing chores and cleaning the house or anything. So <laughs> exactly, exactly. But you may need to bend your knees and squat, possibly. <laughs> you know? Yeah, those squats are still super important. There, I'm a rock climber, so actually, one-legged squats are like a huge part of the way I get up the wall. <laughs> so, exactly. that, like, that's a thing that I'm proud of in my body. And then my roommate goes with me, and he needs a little help. But like, that's <laughs> but that is actually his priority when he goes to work out. He's such a gym rat, but his priority is range of motion. So it's that's why like it comes up from my head if like I have these conversations that we don't usually see because we talk about like having abs or like those visible signs of health and then here you are talking about the mental things the things that we can't immediately observe by looking at somebody 
yeah, if you want to have a whole nother conversation on range of motion, I could talk about that ad nausea. So we, we might have to do that. <laughs> like, but, you know, self-care today. <laughs> yes. As best as, as best as we've been able to do. So. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else you would like to share? Maybe um, what are, how do people find you online? Sure. So again, deathandyoga.com uh, would be the website. And it lists, you know, any of the programs and stuff that I have going on. There are evergreen sort of courses for oncology that are up there. Everything else is sort of scheduled as they come around. But I do have an intro session and a three-week series that could be purchased for the, the oncology cancer world at any time. And then Instagram would be Death and Yoga Studio. I've done a few lives there that, and there are a couple of 20-minute sort of things that if you want to just go check that out and be like, who's this chick? You can go do. (laughs) (laughs) And here's the thing. It's actually appropriate for whether you've been touched by cancer, you're a beginner or you're a triathlete, because it's not about like, again, contorting. It's actually just meditative, slower, and a little bit more restorative. So you can check that out. You can DM me there. That's as close to texting as I get. So that's great. These are amazing resources. <laughs> we will have them linked in the show notes. So definitely check Mason out. And even like all these symptoms that we've described for for cancer as well. I like I was just telling Mason before we hit record. I was like, those are things that we all go through at some point. Like we have burnout, depression. Like we're not measuring bone density, but most of the other symptoms that we all experience. So I definitely see, I'm, I'm definitely going to go check out some of these videos and and get myself some... But even bone density, you may not be measuring it, but that again, this is a conversation for another time, but at a certain age, you like, we reach like maximum... You'll experience bone, it. Bone, no, you reach maximum bone density in your life. And after that, it's all downhill. And it meaning like you oh. lose bone density and it, it's like something like 27. You have until about that point to build up as much bone density as you can that you will have for the rest of your life. And the way you combat the loss of bone density is doing things that resist against gravity. Wow. So actually the bone density part does apply even if you don't have cancer. (laughs) (laughs) Gems right there. There you go. Just dropping those gems. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mason. We will definitely have to talk more. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, TJ. I know that something in this episode left you feeling, oh my God, that's so me. And I want to hear about it. Leave a review on iTunes or tag me on social media and share your relatable story with us so that we can normalize our experiences as Asian Americans and help more people feel safe to step outside of the box. I can't wait to hear about it. You can find me on Instagram at tj.wey and don't forget to design your abundant life.